Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. So the story behind that song, um, you get the part that says, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, Lord, for what I made it. And we're kind of like, huh, what do you mean? What are we talking about here? I think Melanie captured the idea as she prayed there for us. But there was a church with a, a like, well-known worship leader and they were kind of on the cutting edge of more contemporary worship and they had this awesome band and I think they had the lights, you know, everything was just so great and everybody was so, you know, excited about this time of worship. But at some point, that part of the worship service began to take on a life of its own and it became something more that what shouldn't have been. It took the Lord's place. And so the pastor, or maybe pastors of the church, I don't know the specifics there, but said, here's what's going on. We are not singing anymore until we get this straightened out in our lives. And I don't know how many months they went without any music. And then when they came back and added it back in, this was the song that they started with. I'm sorry, Lord. I made it something it wasn't supposed to be. And I don't think we're in that place here, but we could be with other things in our lives, couldn't we? Our lives are to be about the Lord. Well, let's go to the Lord of Prayer again here. Father, thank you uh, that you work in our lives. And I trust you today, Lord, as, as my only prayed, Lord, to speak to us from your word. I pray our hearts would be open to you in this. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When the Washington Post online uh, in February of 2019, uh, this article was there, and it says, Jay Spates, a 66-year-old man from Rockville, Maryland, spent much of his life wondering about his ancestors, probing public records until the trail went cold. Like many black Americans who are descendants of slaves, Spates could find little written evidence of his family's history. In April of 2018, he turned to a DNA test in the hope that something, somewhere, might turn up. And and we're going to come back to this story and get the rest of the story later this morning. Anybody here done an ancestry thing? Yeah? Yeah, some of us here? You know, why do we do that? Why, you know, why is this Jay Spates so interested? Why are you, you you know, I'm interested in it. I haven't done that yet. I think I have some relatives who have uh, done it. But it's because we have something inside of us that we want to know, right? Where did I come from? What's my heritage? Really what? What's my identity? That's what we're really looking for. Who am I? And we look to that to help us figure those things out. Uh, We've been in this sermon series uh, real life saints and the fact that God has called us saints. He's declared that we are saints. That is our identity. But man, that's hard to get your head around sometimes. Hard to get your life around. Um, so today we want to talk about this fact that identity matters. And we're going to catch some really important truths along the way. So let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. <clears throat> page 1314 in the Bible that's in the chairs there. And if you don't have a Bible with you, we really encourage you to 
Find one of those Bibles and follow along. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Last week we looked in chapter 5 and saw the instructions Paul gave about that sin, you know, really, really matters. And when there's open, unrepentant sin within the church, we have to address it because we love people, because we love each other and uh, seek to bring restoration to that. And so he continues. By the way, uh, the Corinthian church had a bunch of problems. But in the very first chapter, Paul talks about what a great church they were. You know, it's possible to be both. It's possible to be a great church because our heart's desire is to be what God wants us to be and still to have problems in the church, right? You know why that's true? It's true of us because it's true of you and it's true of me, right? And and we'll see some of that today, uh, how both of those realities can be a part of our life. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We're going to read the first 11 verses. I think it says 12 on the screen, but verse, just first 11. Paul says, dare any of you. Let me just stop. That's a preacher thing. You don't make it very far before you've got something to say, right? <laughs> dare any of you. And the, the way this is worded in the Greek language, we, we might even in English put, how dare you? Okay? This is a challenge from Paul. How dare you do this? Dare any of you, having a matter against another in the church, us between us, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints. So what we have here is that there is some sort of disagreement that has some kind of a legal ramifications to it between Christians in the church of Corinth. And they were suing each other in the courts. And so they're battling it out in the courts. They're disagreements. And Paul says, how how dare you do that? Why would you do that? And what he says is, you know, you're going to law before the unrighteous, before those who don't know the Lord and not before the saints. Who's the saints? Who? Us. That's right. And so, wow, we're going to see a little more as he talks about it, but he's, he's saying that if you and I have disagreements, forget I'm the pastor, you and me as, you know, brother and sisters in Christ here, we have a significant disagreement that we, you know, one or both of us feel like we've been wronged in this. We ought to come to our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, we have a problem we need your help with. And we're going to see why people don't want to do that, okay? But he's telling him, he's like, why wouldn't you do that? Verse 2, do you not know that the saints, that's you and me, will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels How much more things that pertain to this life? Did you know that was going to be your job in the future? See, at some point, the Lord is coming back for us. You know, we may go to be with him first, but at some point, he's coming back. And when he comes back and it's time for this judgment, uh, we will be doing this with him. Now, not on the basis of our righteousness, right? On the basis of his but we are going to be involved within this in judging the world and also even angels. The Bible talks about that three different places where there are certain angels that are reserved for judgment. And, and we're going to, Paul says here, we're going to be involved in that. So if we are going to be able to judge the world and we are going to even be judging angels, he's saying, can't we make judgments about things in this life? Does that make sense? 
Okay. Let's continue. I'm glad you said it made sense because I'd have to let the Apostle Paul know that you didn't think that made sense. So. All right. Verse 4. If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? And what he means by that, he's talking about the unsaved outside the church. Inside the church, even the least of us has been uh, forever changed by God. God has moved in. He lives in, I say the least of us, the least educated, the least experienced. Least, but God himself lives within us. And he says, so now we're going to go and trust this judgment to people who don't know the Lord. Now, Paul is not saying here that it's wrong to go to court. There are times and places when, you know, it probably makes sense for you to go to court for certain legal issues. And obviously, if you're the one being sued, you have to, you know, go to court. But he's talking about when you and me have a disagreement, right? And I'm not even going to try to come up with scenarios. But you get it, right? We've done, had some interactions into where one or both of us feel like we've been wronged. And we think this ought to be made right. He's saying, don't take that out to the unsaved world, to their courts. Bring it to the church. And let's work that out together. Okay? Yeah, but if I do that, I think I can win in the courts. I don't know about church. You see, that's where we start to play that. And he's going to address that. Verse 5. He says, I say this to your shame. You guys ought to be ashamed. Is it so that there's not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. That's a big failure, he says. When we, you and I, and hopefully it doesn't happen, or you and somebody else in the church, you, I'm going to sue you, <laughs> and you go to court and you do it, Paul says you have already failed. You might win the case, but you've already failed. Okay, let's go back to that verse, verse 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. He says this. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? That's a big pill to swallow, isn't it? But Paul is saying here, he's communicating to us that it would be better rather than go to court. If you can't get a resolution that you think is right for you, he says, the, the relationship that we have with God, the relationship that we have with each other, responsibility to love each other, and the mission that God has given us, all of these things are more important than me getting what I think is right for me. It's more important than you getting what you think is right for you. I mean, that's a big thing. What kind of Christian do you got to be to say, okay, I'll just, I'll, I'll let it go. All right. By the way, once again, uh, how many people does it take in a disagreement between two people? How many people does it take 
to resolve this issue in the church. It takes both people, doesn't it? Because one or the other can walk away and go to court. So that can happen. And if that happens to you and you can't fix it and you have to deal with that, whatever. It's like divorce. God says, divorce is not my desire for you. Divorce is not my will for you. Well, why did God let us divorce then? He says, well, because of the hardness of your hearts and sin created this problem and it has to be dealt with sometimes. But God's will, God's desire, God's heart is that you and I, you and brother and sister in Christ, You've got to have things that are more important to you than making sure you get what you think you deserve. Can I put a little parenthesis here? I want to encourage you, never say you want what you deserve because what you deserve is an eternity in hell. Okay? So that isn't what you want, is it? <laughs> All right. Okay. So he says, why don't you accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? And he answers, he says, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat and you do these things to your brethren. So you're thinking, I'm being wrong and cheated, I'm gonna sue, and he says, guess what? You're guilty of the same attitudes, you're guilty of the same kind of responses, and this is not right. All right. And then he, he, he it seems like he changed the subject, but he doesn't. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Okay, the unrighteous refers to people who are unsaved. Unrighteous equals unsaved. Because when we get saved, that moment when we receive Christ as Savior, now I've said we become saints, but what does that mean? We who are unrighteous, we get Jesus' righteousness credited to our account. And he takes our sins <laughs> and pays for them. Okay? And so... When you get saved, just as surely as you know when I've said it, and I'll probably say it again today. When you get saved, you are no longer a sinner by nature, deep down in the core of your being. You have been forever changed. You are a new creation. We're no longer sinners. We are now saints, right? Deep down inside. That's who we are. Made holy, righteous, loving, a lot like Jesus, down deep in our spirits, who we are. And so when we, uh, we, are, made, we are now saints who are still learning not to sin. We still struggle with that stuff because remember, how messed up were we by sin? Like, really messed up? Really messed up. Twisted. Messed up. So we're a work in progress, right? But our identity is that. And so he's saying, remember, he said, unsaved people, this is how they live. Unsaved people. And they, he, did, he lists them. He says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And this is just a partial list. But he says this, do not be deceived, neither fornicators, and that we would probably more likely translate it as sexual immorality of any kind. Which sexual immorality is, is sex that's outside of the bounds of a committed marriage relationship between a man and a woman. That's what the Bible teaches, okay? So sex outside of that. Neither fornicators nor idolaters. We know that's, you know, you're worshiping something else in the song we sang today. As they wrote that song and they sang it, they were realizing that they had begun to worship the worship instead of God. Okay, idolaters. Nor adulterers. We know what that is. Nor homosexuals. Nor sodomites. And this is referring to uh, the homosexual, the word translated homosexual, uh, needs of effeminate and um, soft. And the idea is it's the person who uh, uh, 
received the homosexual acts, and then uh, sodomites, the, the men who were perpetuating those acts. And he says, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. The unrighteous are not saved. The unrighteous are on the way to hell. And this is a short list. This is not the full list, right? We could, in fact, over in Revelation, we find uh, uh, liars are on this list. And, and we're going to talk about some things I think will help clear this up for you today. But what I want you to see is this. When he says fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners, he is talking about a person's identity. That's who they really are. Do you know that someone who's saved, someone who has received Christ as Savior, is no longer these things? I'm going to elaborate on that, but hang in there with it, okay? Because God isn't just picking some people in their sins and saying, oh, they can't go to heaven. That's not what it's about. No, at all. He's talking about people who haven't been changed, the unrighteous, those who've never received Christ as Savior, those who are unsaved. God has never moved in. Their sins aren't forgiven. And this is how we describe them. This is their identity. Um, and then he says this, glorious, glorious words, and such were some of you. You used to be this way, but you have been saved. Okay? He says, but you were washed. That means forgiven and cleaned up. But you were sanctified. That means you were made holy and set apart for God and his work. But you were justified. That means you were made right with God. Justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the spirit of our God. And so what he's reminding them here is, what he's really saying is, when you guys are living like this and you're going to law, to court against each other, sue each other, and, and it's about you being right, and, and you know, I'm going to not let you have your, all of that stuff. He says, you're living like an unsaved person. That's the way the unsaved live. And that's not you anymore. Why are you living that way? That's why he said, no, you should... Come to the church, and that's why you should be willing to even be wronged if need be, because you're no longer that unsaved person. That's no longer your identity. All right. Lord, help us to understand this here today. Uh, I think the facts of this story are pretty straightforward, aren't they? You know, believers going to court against each other, to sue each other in front of unsaved people. Um, that must have been a lovely church experience, huh? Come to church and you know that this guy over here is suing that guy over there. Or I don't know if it's happening more than that. He doesn't get real specific and act like it's one case. He acts like this is a problem. Um, and I see Paul saying, uh, no. In fact, what comes to mind is I recently watched the movie The Borrowers with my um, grandchildren. You guys, have you seen that, you know, the more modern version of that? Well, anyway, the dad there, when he says no, he goes, no, 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 no. And that's kind of what comes to mind when I hear what Paul is dealing with. Is no, this is not good. This is not right. 
And so what we see here happening at first, he says, why wouldn't you go to the church? You know, think about who's part of the body of Christ with you and, and let's go get that taken care of there. And what we see going on here was there was a, a, a serious devaluing of the body of Christ and those in it. A devaluing of the church, not seeing the, the value that we have in our relationships with each other. And today what I do want to do is we go through this and look at this. Uh, I think this passage raises for us at least four crucial truths that we want to look at today. Okay, four crucial truths. And the first one is this, that a genuine relationship with your church family is one of your greatest resources in life. Dave standing right here earlier today. What did he talk about? You guys, us, the body of Christ, and what that meant to him in this situation. And uh, it's not just things like that. It's just that what we can easily devalue what we have in the church, but we ought not. We ought to say, wow, what do we have in the church? What do I have in you? What do you bring to me? What do I bring to you? And it's not just about skills or knowledge. It's the fact that God himself lives in me. And he can work through me into your life. And God lives within you and he can work through you into my life. And we have this together. And the unsaved don't have that. As I sat uh, beside um, Richard Cummings on Friday morning, about an hour after his wife had passed, and we were talking, and you know, he has family who knows the Lord and who are there with him and he knows the Lord and Marcia knew the Lord and she was ready to go but he's he said what must it be like to not have a relationship with the Lord and not have those people in your life and you lose someone who's been your life for 40 plus years you know this is part of the reason why part of the reason why Paul tells us that when we lose someone, we, we're going to sorrow, but we don't sorrow like people who have no hope. Oh, man, because God is in me. He's in you, and, and we're in this together, and I'm not alone. I'm not alone. And so, you know, I, I intellectually believe this point, and I do try to live by it, but I forget it sometimes. So let me tell you this. If anything ever happens to my wife and she passes away, and I'm left alone here. I know my tendencies. My tendency is going to be to disappear into my house and into my work. Will you come rescue me? Come for me. And what I want you to know is that we're coming for you. Okay? So I told Richard, his wife, I said, don't worry. We're not going to let you go. We're coming after you in a good way. And, and that's what we have in each other in so many different ways. He's gifted us in different ways. And he does bring together the body of Christ and fits us together in ways that we might. Yeah, I just had an experience this morning with someone sharing with them that something God had put on my heart related to them. And it was a blessing to me as I thought about it again. I think it was a blessing to this person. I mean, it was just, this is what we have. So don't devalue each other. The Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 1 when he says that you may know, go ahead there, Eduardo, that you may know the riches of the glory of his inheritance where? In the saints. What we have in each other. 
And, and we have to choose to believe that. And when we choose to believe it and we choose to then act upon it, then we begin to experience it. Uh, and guess what? This doesn't happen just by attending a Sunday morning event. It doesn't happen just by watching something online. It happens when we consciously, purposefully come and see the people around us and value them. And on Sunday morning, you're here. Like I, I think I mentioned last week, you can show up early and, and try to connect with somebody. They may need you. You may need them. There's times when I come and do both. When I, I need somebody, I need someone today, and you guys minister to me, and I want to do the same for you. And uh, so that can happen. Or you hang around afterwards, whatever. But so many more. And other opportunities, you know. And I get it. Sometimes it's hard if you're new to the place or you're kind of alone in the place. It's, that can be hard. But just let me encourage you. Let's believe God and pursue what he says. And don't let what's hard keep us from it. Okay? All right. So a genuine relationship with your church family is one of your greatest resources in, in life. The second thing that we see here is that this was a terrible testimony to unbelievers in the courts and unbelievers who may have been watching. Does this look like love? I'm suing you in court. I'm standing saying what a scoundrel you are. And you're saying the same, this just doesn't look like love. And this really, really matters. Remember as Jesus was spending that last night with his disciples, he's in the upper room with them and he's talking with them and he gives what he calls a new commandment. Okay, in John chapter 13, verse 35, he says this, by this all will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. If you have love for one another. So the as the world looks at us, how are we interacting with each other? Jesus says here, if they can see that you really love each other the way I love you, they're going to say, those folks are Christians. Those people are Christians. I don't know if Christianity is true or not, but those people are Christians. Okay, that's how they should be able to tell that we're Christians. They, it's not they can tell we're Christians by how I dress or what, how I do my hair, which is easy for me these days, and are or, um, you know, whatever else. Did I wear a Christian t-shirt, you know? I mean, no, he says, they'll, they'll know you're my followers because you really love each other. It's evident you really do. And then it goes on a few chapters later that night as Jesus is praying to the Father, he prays these words over in chapter 17. He says, that they all may be one, talking about us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Okay, so this idea of oneness doesn't mean we're always unified and everything, but it means this. It means that I love you as a believer in Christ even when things are hard. I love you regardless of your race. I love you regardless of your ethnic background. I love you regardless of your status, your you know, financial status in life. I, I have this love for you even when we have disagreements. Because think about this oneness that comes. If, if someone can observe two people who you would normally expect to go to court and sue each other, instead go to their church family and they work it all out and maybe they didn't get everything they thought they should or whatever, but it doesn't matter. And even though they may not be the best of friends, they're still together. What does that say to the world? Is that natural? Is that normal? 
No, it's not normal in our world. And so the world looks at this and says, wow, not only are these people Christians, but there must be something to it. Must be something to it, right? Maybe God really did send Jesus. Okay, so this really matters. So the second of these four crucial truths is this, that your loving relationship with other believers adds great credibility to your witness. I tell you, you want to share your faith and then cuss out your brother or sister in Christ, not going to go very far. But as people get to know you and see you and they understand how important your church family is to you, what does it take for you to blow off church? Thank, well, not a, not a I guess not a predicted hurricane. Here you are. But it's demonstrating something, right? It's the love that we have for each other. And if people come and see it and experience it. But the idea is it's going to lend great credibility to your witness. Uh, as I've uh, witnessed and talked to folks on um, the Lester Cruz night. And by the way, I'm beginning to have more and more gospel conversations. Because we've had, we've built relationships to a level. But I've also had someone who talked about they were seriously thinking about coming here, and they might still someday. And the person, the man's wife said, well, we could just go to this church down here. He said, oh, no. He said, I want to I wanna go to the church that Walt and Tom and Ed go to. Because he sees us together. You see what I'm saying? All right. And so it adds great credibility to your witness. All right. The third thing here that's going on is, uh, there, was, there was a display of wrong, selfish priorities in life. Uh, because what it means is I, I am willing to sue you because of what I think is important. And Paul's saying, no, 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 there's something more important than that. You ought not be going to, to court against you. I wouldn't sue you. And secondly, um, is why am I not looking to you to help? I mean, why am I not looking to my brothers and sisters in Christ to help? A display of selfish priorities. And that's, we know that because he says, why don't you accept the wrong? Well, because your priorities are wrong. That's why. Why aren't you willing to let yourself be cheated? Because you have the wrong priorities. You have the priorities of unsaved people, not saved people. If your priorities are living for the Lord and wanting what he wants and being effective in his mission and learning, working at loving each other and, and growing in these things, then you're going to say, okay, yeah, if I need to, I'll accept the wrong. If I need to. If we can't work this out, there's things that are more important. Higher priority for me. Um, if your priorities instead are proving that you're right. Now, you've never been that way, have you? Where what mattered most was proving you're right. If that's our, if that's our priorities, proving we're right, if we're negative about anyone who disagrees with us, if we really live like life revolves around me and my desires, you and your desires, then, then we're guilty of what Paul says here, living like unsaved people. And so third crucial truth, exchanging your natural priorities for the Lord's priorities, especially in the area of love, is what will make your life distinctly Christian. If someone's going to look at your life, even if you just look at it yourself, what's going to make it distinctly Christian is when your priority, you say, okay, God, I, 
I want my priorities to be what you want them to be. And then so you begin seriously pursuing the Lord about that and you grow and you learn and you exchange your priorities for his. And especially in the area of love again, right? We're going to love and you're going to really look like a Christian because you are <laughs> and you're living like one. We need to do that. Um, when people see what's really important to you, here's the question. When people see what's really important to you, do they think, Oh, a Christian. Hmm. If people really could see in your life what looks like what's most important to you, would they think Christian or would they think something else? We need to exchange those priorities in love, make love that high, high priority. Uh, because a Christian worldview leads to a very different approach to life, doesn't it? When you're looking at life the way Paul's telling us to look at it, it makes a huge difference in how you live. Uh, Peter said this. He says, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. Our priorities are what God wants. And if we suffer because of that, if we suffer because we're living like Christians, God says that's going to be a good thing for you. Okay. Final failure here we see is that there's a failure to live like saved people should live. Failure to live like saved people should live. You know, he says when you're living like unsaved people, you're treating others poorly. You're living out selfish desires. You're willing to hurt other people if need be to get your way. He said that's the way unsaved people live. And by the way, unsaved people often live better than that. Right? When they do, they're living better than their nature. But, uh, and he says this. Remember, unsaved people end up in hell. So why are you living like unsaved people? Why are you doing that? And so let, let's talk about some things. Because let's, let's, let's look again in chapter 6. In verse number nine, in the middle of the verse, he says, do not be deceived. And then he goes through a list of these identities, okay? From fornicators down to extortioners and everything in between, that identity. He says, why are you living like you're unsaved? All right. So when we see this list of sins, he says, these people will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't make it to heaven. Why is that? Is it because they have sinned? Is it because they've sinned in bad ways? Well, if that's the case, I'm not making it to heaven. And neither are you. Right? The reason these people aren't making it to heaven is because they don't have a relationship with Christ. And so here's the truth. Relationship, not behavior. Go ahead and put that up if you would, Eduardo. Relationship, not behavior, determines your identity. Yeah, go ahead. There you go. Thank you. Relationship, not behavior, determines your identity, right? I am a Christian not because I have learned to behave like one. I am a Christian because I have a relationship with Christ. I've received Christ as Savior. And if you haven't received Christ as Savior, you need to do that. Let us help you. Reach out. We'll help you understand how, what that's about and do that. So your relationship with Christ, not your behavior, determines your identity. A second truth that goes along with that is identity, not behavior, determines your destiny. Okay? 
Right? So I have a relationship with Christ. That makes me a Christian. And the fact that I am a Christian, I'm saved, I'm born again, now determines my destiny, which is heaven, eternal life with Christ. And his working in my life in here now. Okay? So again, it's about identity. And that brings us to the third truth, that what you believe about your identity will always affect your behavior. Title this sermon, Identity Matters. It really does matter. Because what you believe always affects how you live. So let's think about this. You drove, how many of you actually did the driving today? Okay, you're driving in. How many of you believe that your brakes were going to work on the way here? You probably didn't even give it a thought, did you? But you had a belief that those brakes were going to work. And so you, you act like it. You push the brake when it's time to stop. What if you didn't believe that the brakes were going to work? Would you have driven differently? You might not have driven at all, right? Okay, we're trying to say that's a simple example. What we believe affects what we do. And so what you believe about your identity, who am I really? What am I really like down, deep down inside here? Who am I? is always going to affect your behavior. If you believe, I am nothing but a sinner, I am a lowly worm, I can never get anything right, guess what you're going to live like? You're going to live like a sinner, a worm, who can never get anything right. Because what hope is there? But if instead you believe what God says about you, that he has indeed forgiven every sin, that he indeed has moved in and given you a new nature with deep down inside there, he's made you a new creation, he's at work in your life. And so when that temptation to sin comes along, you can actually say no. You don't have to go with it. Now sadly, we're all that we're big works in progress and far too often we go with it. But we don't have to anymore. We can do something different. And when I remind myself of this, when I find myself faced with various kinds of temptations, and, and by God's grace, the Holy Spirit reminds me, wait a minute, who are you? Who are you really? Does that go along with who you really are? No, actually it doesn't. <laughs> In fact, I don't want to do that anymore. Okay? Uh, so this idea, relationship, not behavior, determines your identity. Identity, not behavior, determines your destiny. What you believe about your identity will always affect your behavior. That brings us to the fourth crucial truth. Embracing your true identity in Christ will enable you to make progress in living like a true Christian. Embracing that true identity. Now, let's look at this list here. Let's just use the first one. And by the way, Paul keeps bringing up sexual immorality. You know why? It was a problem in Corinth. Hey, you think it might be a problem today in our culture? Yeah. So let's just use the first one, fornicator, sexually immoral. If someone who, who lives as a sexually immoral person, and that's their identity, and they get saved, they come, they see their sin, and they, they confess it, you know, to God that they are a sinner and they need a savior. They believe that Jesus died for them, rose again. They place their faith in him. That moment God says that he forgives every sin they ever be a part of their life. He forgives it all and he, um, he, he you know, gives them eternal life because he moves in and he begins working on them from the inside out because he's moved in. Uh, that happens to this person. Now let me ask again, how much has sin messed us up? 
All right, so this person has however many years of living like an unsafe person, being a sexually immoral person. You think there's any baggage there? You think there's any wrong ways of thinking there? Right? Any bad habits there? Probably all of those things. And so it's going to take time to work that out. Okay, but here's the deal. That person got saved, and they are no longer a sexually immoral person. They are now a saint who's learning not to live in sexual immorality. See the difference? Because if I get saved and I'm still a sexually immoral person, what hope is there? This is just the way I am. Remember the world tells you that's your identity. But no, when you receive Christ as Savior, it's no longer your identity. Because look, he, he lists those things and he said, some of you used to be those things, but you're not anymore. See, that's the implication, right? You're not anymore. You have a new identity. Live different. Believe that you have that identity. Believe the truth about it. Learn about it. Make progress in it. Um, yeah, your identity really, really matters. So based on these four crucial truths, let's just look very quickly at four crucial conclusions, and then we'll go back and finish our story. First one is this. Highly value your church family. Figure out what that means. Do what it takes. Ask someone to help you with it, whatever. Highly value your church family and let that be something you begin to live out in your life. Secondly, really love your brothers and sisters in Christ. By the way, that's going to take work too. You know how? Because you look at them and say, they aren't easy to love. Well, look in the mirror. Right? Sometimes we're not easy to love, right? If we're honest. You really love your brothers and sisters in Christ and value them highly. Third, let Christ's love determine your priorities. What are your priorities in life? Maybe you need to get all that out on the table. Sit at home and your dining room table and envision putting them out there or write priorities on sticky notes and put it out there and look and say, okay, wait a minute. Which of these priorities are, are the result of my love for God and my love for my brothers and sisters in Christ? The, those need to be higher priority. These priorities need to go and change, right? You might need to do that. Let Christ's love determine your priorities. And finally, work on believing what God says about your identity in Christ. Don't just hear a sermon and go, okay, yeah, you're out the door and you're back to living like you did. No, purpose today, I'm going to give this some thought. I'm going to take this up with God. I'm going to talk about my, with my brother and sister in Christ. But I got, I got to work on this. What does this mean in my life? How should it affect me? I feel like my life's going pretty well. Am I getting it or am I missing it? I don't know, right? Work on it. Keep working on it. I still see things from time to time. It's like, oh, God, thank you. I had that kind of uh, insight. I don't know if it was yesterday or Friday or whenever, but I, I just posted something on Facebook, and it hit me. The God's at work in my life, which I know. He's doing something. And when all's said and done, I'll see what he's been doing. But you know the reality is? He already sees me that way. He already sees me as to what he's making me to be. Okay? Good, good news. All right, let's go back to our story here. So this Jay Spates goes looking at DNA, trying to find something out about his identity, who he was. He, he, so he did the DNA test. He was identified as a descendant of a royal line in Benin, a small nation that once housed West Africa's biggest slave port. 
At the urging of a friend, he ran his DNA data through another database that looks for matches between African Americans and Africans who have taken such tests. And with minutes of in, within minutes of entering his information in the database, Spate said the website lit up with the result. It said, Royal DNA. Through a series of events, Spates was able to talk with a woman in Benin, Africa, named, and here we go, I'll give it a try, Jahami Kobadegbi Quinepo. She was the queen of Alada, a state in central Benin and the historical home of the Alada kingdom. She told Spates, you are a descendant of King Deca, ninth king of Alada who ruled from 1746 to 1765, and we will be delighted to welcome you back to your home, dear Prince. In January of 2019, Spates boarded a plane in Virginia, landed in Benin 36 hours later. The family pictures he had sent to the queen were plastered on big blue posters hung throughout the airport. Welcome to the kingdom of Alada, land of your ancestors, the poster said. As he stepped outside, Spate said he saw what looked like a festival, hundreds of people dancing and playing instruments and singing. It took him several minutes to realize it was a welcome party for him. I thought, wow, this is serious, Spate said. I thought I was going to go hang out with the family and do some sightseeing, but this is something else. He spent the next week in what he calls Prince School, learning local customs and visiting various sites and dignitaries. He was enthroned by the king and given several crowns. At night, an armed guard kept watch outside his hotel door. During the day, local journalists followed him around with cameras. Spate is the first member of the Alada Kingdom and the Deca clan to return to Benin from the African diaspora, he said. He has, he has accepted, quote, princely duties which include promoting the kingdom and helping bring clean water and electricity to the community where his relatives live. This, he says this, this was the most beautiful thing I have ever done. I am the descendant of slaves. I am the descendant of a family who was involved in the slave trade. And I'm just starting to make sense of that. Before he left Benin, Spate said the king gave him a new name, Vitakandeka. It means the child who came back. What an interesting thing. When he actually learned what his true identity, think what he experienced. First of all, he said, this is serious. This matters. He said that. He went to Prince School. Well, you guys are in Saint School. Right? An armed guard kept watch outside his hotel door. Do you know angels watch over you? Protecting you? Local journalists followed him around with cameras. The world is watching you. He has princely duties. We have saintly duties, right? Ways we're supposed to live. We're talking about that. Promoting the kingdom. We tell others about the Lord. And he says, I'm just starting to make sense of that. And so that's where we're. We're always working to make sense of our identity and what does that mean in our lives. How do we live these things out? And he got a new name. Revelation chapter 2 seems to indicate that when we come to Christ, he gives us a name, a new name that's known only to him, and we don't know what it is yet, but in heaven, he'll show us, here is my name for you, because we're saints. Does your identity matter? 
It matters tremendously. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that when we receive you, son, totally undeserving, nothing we could bring to deserve that, but that you save us forever and you change who we are. You make us your sons and daughters. We have a relationship with you and now that is our identity. I pray, Lord, we would keep growing in that. We grow in our understanding of it. We would grow in living out what it means to be a saint, that you'd help us to exchange our old ways for your good and better ways. And God, do a great work in our lives. We need you to. We desperately need you to. And we want you to. And I pray, Lord, for anybody who's here, that undoubtedly now there's lots of questions and what does this mean and how do I understand it? I pray, Lord, that they will seek someone out and ask those questions. And that we'll all grow, Lord, together as your people. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.